Welcome to the Envision Together, Going to Our Next Level of Best podcast. I'm your host, Pamela Mishana. Join me on this bi-weekly journey of empowerment, where you'll hear hands-on advice from lifestyle experts, educators, authors, spiritual leaders, and many more who will share tips on how to triumph personally, professionally, and spiritually. We explore timely topics such as overcoming anxiety and fear, educating the reluctant student, cultivating lasting relationships, and strengthening our faith. My hope is that the insights offered on the show will help us envision ourselves using our unique gifts and talents on greater levels for greater purposes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Envision Together, going to our next level of best podcast. Today, I have a guest. His name is Aaron Shelley, and he's going to be sharing with us about really lots of things, but he's really going to talk to us a lot about being in relationships and other things that he's going to expound on a little bit more in just a minute. So what I'm doing is having him introduce himself to us in his own way. So, Aaron, welcome, and so pleased that you've wanted to join us on Envision Together. Thanks, Val. I'm excited to be here. So, a quick background on myself. I grew up, I always played a lot of sports. I threw javelin in high school, and then I got into mechanical engineering in college, got frustrated in mechanical engineering because I realized as a mechanical engineer, if you don't have good business people, you won't actually be successful. But I loved engineering and trying to understand how everything works and the fundamental principles that guide it so that I could build, you know, really cool stuff like airplanes. That's why I tend to love Elon Musk and the work he does in space because I'm like, oh, it's amazing. (laughs) But I realized that. So then I went and got an MBA because I wanted to understand the business world because that's the other side of what I felt was important to me being successful and having an impact. At at the point that I graduated, most students kind of go off and do, you know, follow the career. Where's the big company? I need to move from wherever I'm at. I had an opportunity to move up to Portland at Intel, but I decided my wife and I, she was teaching a Irish dance classes. She had a little bit. And my wife and I decided instead of following the job, like most people, we were going to build a business. So we bought a house, put a studio behind it. My wife then could teach from it and we could have our children. Had two at the time. And then I had, there was always a struggle with entrepreneurship. Those first few years were rough. And then I got a job at Ancestry.com in their operations team, doing a lot of fun stuff there. Then I moved to a startup. That startup, it was also in the genealogy space. It didn't do well, but it was kind of dealing with family stuff as well. And then I had an opportunity. My mom connected me with a professor at a university who he was writing on family uh, businesses and why there's different level of entrepreneurships in different groups in the United States. So then we were researching different family structures and how those could affect it. Well, in the process of doing that, I was just helping him. And I had I said, here's a better model. And I wrote up this paper and about 50 pages. And then he said, hey, that sounds like it's yours, not mine. And I was like, but, but I didn't want to write a book. I just wanted the information out there. Uh-huh. So I had that pretty much done. And then there was this opportunity. A friend of mine called me up and asked if I wanted a job in his company with about 20 people. And that company turns out in the next three years, we grew up to about 180 people, took $50 million in private equity funding, 
So I kind of put the book on hold, but I learned a lot about company structure and culture. So I was kind of in this interesting point of seeing this business and family and kind of being in the mix of those. And one of the, I think, impactful things to me was also my mom sent me a an article about a friend of mine who had grown up in the same neighborhood, gone to the same church, same sports events, and he was getting sentenced to life in prison for rape and attempted murder. And I was like, wait, what happened? Mm -hmm. <laughs> this was someone who was on the same path. We were so close to each other in terms of socioeconomic status, all the things that they talk about in all the books, and then this had changed. So that's really when I got this hard obsession into how can I understand this better? The engineer side, I need to understand the principles. I need to understand how this works because I do not want this for my four children. Wow. So <laughs> I, I was able to step back from the company and now I'm kind of focused on the book and trying to get that out so that other people can also understand the key models and how families, I think, can work better if we look at them through a business lens. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> lots unpacked there. That was a mouthful. I so many times actually wanted to interrupt you because you were saying things that I was like, wait a minute, I want to know more about that. Wait a minute, I want to know more about that. <laughs> so I'm going to try to remember some of those things. I do have a set of questions for you, but I had new questions listening to that. One is just a simple little thing. You're probably like, really? She wants to know more about that? Yes. Talk to me about your whole javelin experience. <laughs> yeah, so throwing javelin, it was... A friend of mine, one of my good friends, actually, I talk about his family in the book. He was throwing javelin. I was playing football at the time. I, I played at ninth grade. And then I kind of got injured. And I was like, do I really want to make my money? Or do I think I'm going to be a successful football player? You know, I, I'm 6'4". I had a big frame. I was a big person. But my dad was a professor. So I was like, I'm not going to make my money this way. But I had a good body, had the athletic ability. So then this friend of mine was throwing javelin. He said, you should get into it. Mm -hmm. So I got into it. It's a little dangerous. There was a number of times where I could have got hit, you know, when you're warming up with other javelin and we're all <laughs> new to this. So I don't think it's uh, legal in most states anymore. But yeah, I threw that. I went to state for javelin. It was a good experience. It was a little interesting because you think the track and field team are like a team. But as I was throwing javelin, I was kind of off on my own little world you know, all the runners run together and then they go, okay, go do your thing over there. And we all, the field people are like, okay, I'll go do my pole vaulting or I'll go do my javelin. So it was good in some ways, but it didn't have the same camaraderie that I really enjoy for most team sports like football. Mm -hmm. That is just such an amazing sport with the guys together. I love the energy, the weight room, all that stuff. So is there any relationship between javelin and engineering? I mean, it's all physics. It depends how you think about it, right? Yeah. For me, it's like, well, what's your launch velocity? What's your angle? So yeah, there's there's that part, which is very intellectual. You know, I did like that. And you're you're working through it. But when it comes down to it, you really have to train your body how to throw. I also played baseball, but it's a very different throwing motion yeah. because you're trying to make the thing go completely straight and you have this hold on it. So that yeah, was a lot of fun, but really weird, but a lot of fun <laughs> to do it. I can tell you how I can relate to that that you just shared. I have a lot of background writing plays. And then one day I decided to write a novel. And while it's writing, they're two different animals <laughs> all together. I can relate to it in, in that sort of way. Well, thanks for sharing that. So let's jump in uh, to the prepared question, so to speak. So you describe 
the greatest wealth is being in relationships. What do you mean by this? And what brought you to an epiphany on this subject? So I know you wrote the book, uh, The Family Flywheel. That's kind of like, I'm going to see that almost as a destination. But what was all this that was going on before you got there? It was an epiphany to me. I'm an engineer. And I think most engineers feel like it's all about what I can do, what I can build, how I perform. Also as an athlete, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about who I know. It's about my abilities. And you look in the NFL, you look, you know, Michael Jordan was one of my big heroes growing up. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, it's what he can do. And the guy was amazing. Right. So as an engineer and a business person, I was like, I just got to let my results speak for themselves. And then as I was writing the book, I kind of was breaking out in a business, like here's the different resources a a business has. They have these financial resources. Then they have these social resources, their marketing, their sales, their brand. And then they have their human resources, which is the collective time, energy, and skills they have in the company. But if you look at most companies, like if you look at Nike, their brand is such an important part. And if you actually look at the balance sheet on Nike, they put a number on how much the brand is worth. It's called goodwill usually, but it's we don't really know. There's not an easy way to track it. So when I put that together for businesses, then I apply that to family. I'm like, well, we have our, our skills and abilities, but we have our relationships with our spouse. We have our relationships with our community. We have our relationships with our coworkers, with people in our church or other sports groups. And those relationships, as I've seen it, are more important. Like if I became a billionaire, but my wife and my children hate me, how is that wealthy? Right. Right. So this is this interesting place where a lot of people will do that, only focus on the financial, and then they hit the end of their life and they're like, so what? I have a big number in my bank account, but I'm lonely. The people I did all that for, Mm -hmm. or I felt like I was doing that for, hate me. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I even destroyed some of them with the wealth. So This is this tragedy of like, if you overinvest, in my opinion, spend too much time just going after the money, well, then now you've you've missed out on that, the most important part, which is the relationships and the legacy you leave, because that's really where, you know, the people you impact, if you have children, your spouse, those people are going to continue on with the legacy of your values and of your beliefs. And that's really what's sad is that people will focus so much on the financial and ignore this, the social. That's so important. It's like you're financially wealthy, but you're poor in every other way, in the most meaningful ways. And I can relate to that, too. I used to be a workaholic and I thought I was doing all these things to make life better for my daughter and I. And then I was like, oh, my God, but that meant I was away a lot. And so fortunately, we're very, very close. We have a strong bond. I don't know how we manage with all of that, but even how much more could we have had in the relationship blossom if there was a little more time to smell the flowers, so to speak. One thing that's really stood out to me just listening to you today is how many times as you even opened uh, telling us about yourself, you referenced your mom. That really stood out to me. So even that is telling me something about the way you think. There's a strong relationship there. So maybe you almost didn't have a choice but to come full circle with these thoughts because the foundation was laid for you, it seems, through your mom. I'm sure we're going to touch a little bit more on that as we continue in the conversation. 
So what does it mean to look at families through the lens of business? What does that actually mean? Unpack it for us. Well, so if we go to a business, I think a lot of people now have experience there. We're all going and getting training. We're working in business. And I think family can be a little harder sometimes because of some of the emotional things that some people go through. So if we go to the business, I think we have some training there. And we also have experience with companies. So if I use the example, if we have Google, they have a particular strategy that they're trying to execute. They're trying to organize the world's data. That's their stated mission, I believe. And how are they going to do that? They're going to do that by through technology. And then you have their structure. So they have a strategy piece. That's where we're going. Mm-hmm. How are we going to make money? We're going to do it through ads as their current model. And then they have a structure. They don't have this very heavy top-down structure. It's very loose. They want to have as few managers as possible. They hire very smart, educated people. And that's the structure they're choosing. And they give them equity in Google. So a lot of them have stock, those type of things. You look at the culture of Google. It's a very proactive learning space. How do you learn? How do you be productive? If you're good at 4 a.m. working, great. I'm going to give you the flexibility to work at 4 a.m. I'm trying to get the output of your creativity. I'm not trying to get something else done. So that's Google's culture. Now, if you compare that to Walmart, which is trying to help people live better through providing products through you know, affordable prices, that's their strategy. And their structure is, it's structured according to all their businesses and then their distribution centers. And they have a very top-down structure because they hire a lot of first job people or poorly educated people a lot of times, or just older people. This isn't like a group of engineers who've been trained. It's it's just a different group. That's It's not bad or good. It's just that's who they have. But they need a lot of direction and they need to They need to train them a lot. And then their culture is, we need to just show up on time. You don't have freedom to work at 4 a.m. You need to come in on your shift. You need to be there because customers need stuff on the shelves and customers need to take stuff out. So Walmart, if you look at their strategy and structure and culture, it's all aligned. And that's why their business model is able to produce so much money, stores, all this type of stuff. As is Google's, it's aligned. But if you were to take Google's strategy and plop it onto Walmart... Yeah, it would be a failure. Yeah, and if you took any of their culture, you know, Walmart's culture of a top down, and put it onto Google, all the engineers would leave. Yeah, right. So you have these things where they're they're both good business models, and this is what I try to do in the book. There is a right thing. It's what are you trying to achieve, and making sure you're aligned. Because if you're aligned, then the business model will work. So now let's jump that over to families, right? If you look at a family and you said. Let's say I'm an individual. So I I talk about individuals as well as a family. But I say I wanted to become a doctor. That's my strategy. My mission is to heal people. And my strategy is become a doctor. So then I jump into my structure. Okay, how am I going to structure my life so that I can achieve that? I got to go to college. Then I got to go to med school. Then I got a residency. And then you look at my culture. I better have a culture of delayed gratification Mm -hmm. because I'm in this for 10 plus years and I'm going to have a ton of debt. So I'm investing for a 10 or 15 year period before I see any benefit. Yeah. Right. If I don't have that culture, I'm in trouble. But compare that to like a a blue collar worker where I'm going to jump straight into the workforce and I'm going to get paid a good chunk of money. And that's my strategy. I'm going to build literally put homes over people's heads. That's a very noble cause. And then you say, well, what structure is it? Well, I'm going to have to structure my life, be up early in the morning, go to sleep, take care, you know, take care of my body. And then you look at what culture it is. It's less about I need to be a heavy learner, I need to invest up front because I'm actually getting paid. You know, I need to follow the rules, you know, make sure I'm following code and those type of things. 
but I don't need to invest as much as just learning for years and years and years. And then I can become a, a journeyman. So that's a different structure, right? And then if you want to become an entrepreneur, I'm sure you're kind of gone through this. It's like, is anyone going to sell, buy what I want? Are people going to want to buy it? It's like being a doctor, but you don't know that there's an end in it. So there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of investment with the hope that there's going to be something at the end. Yeah. And so if you don't have the right culture in, your, in, in you individually, it's going to be a big problem that doesn't align with your strategy and structure. I mean, I had a friend, he was an entrepreneur. He didn't pay his mortgage for six months. He had two kids and his wife was okay with it somehow, right? And then he was like, well, I know the game. They won't foreclose until this and therefore, and I'm like, my mental health does not deal with that. <laughs> that culture of being able to do that, it worked for him and his wife. And they, I don't think it would have worked for me. Yeah. I'm like, I'll, I'll need security. <laughs> I need some. So, the, so that's the type of stuff where I see there's these different pieces. If you look at your own life and you go, if you look at your structure, am I going to be a single parent? Am I going to be in a two parent household? Am I going to be in an extended family where I live with my parents or my parents live with me or my children live with me? All those things play into it. And those are your structure. I'm assuming since you're trying to do your podcast and help all these people, you're a heavy learner. I see all the books behind you. It's clear you value learning and education and what's new and how do I make the systems better? So that's an essential part of your culture in going in there. So, but if on the other hand, you're like, I have no way to make money. Okay. I want to be a podcaster, but I have no money. Okay. You got to have some money somehow. So it's right. kind of making sure things are aligned. Can you, do you have the finances to take a big entrepreneurial bet? Or do you have the social support to take that on? Those are the questions that you're looking at, but there is no right culture. There is no right, you know, just like I said in Walmart and Google, there is no right way to do it. It's just, what are you trying to do and how do you get everything aligned? What you're making me think about is, I keep thinking individualized plan and I'm applying that to family. And mm -hmm. I normally think of things like that in my workplace. So now I'm reflecting on, okay, if you have a family and you see these different personalities sitting around the table, you have to understand these different personalities, how they work individually, but how they work collectively and how does the family structure itself to support the different individualized plans that are represented in the family. Get from point A to point Z in terms of what their goals, dreams, ambitions are, how they're wired. How is the family wired? What are those common goals that the individual goals might feed into the common goals or not? But it certainly works better if they do. This is what you'd say in a company. We were growing this company from 20 to 180 people. We have to put forward a mission because, you know, if you were going to a company and you said, so what do you guys do? What are you trying to do? Well, we, we just make money. However, whatever we can do, you're like, this is not compelling. What's your long-term goal? At the last company I, I was with, our goal was to make contractors heroes because we were supporting roofers. And we we're saying these people are literally putting the roofs over our heads in the United States. This is a noble goal. And I appreciate it with my own roof, right? And so in our families, I think sometimes people will get together, get married or live together. And they're like, well, why are we even together? In a business, if you and I, if I said, hey, Pamela, let's go, let's get into business. You want to do a podcasting business and I want to do a legal business. You'd be like, what are we doing? This isn't going to work. 
Like in my case of my wife, she did the Irish dance side. She had all this teaching. I've never done Irish dance, but I took care of all the technical stuff, took care of plowing the road, building the building, maintaining the building, you know, building the website, all that type of stuff. So there's this great synergy. And if you look at good businesses, you see good synergies. Oh, this is a technical founder. And then this is a, a business person, right? These two people work together well. And if you look at your family and you're looking for the same thing of, I want to marry this person. Where's the complementary basis? If, if I'm good at engineering and I started a business with a person who's good at engineering, that's great, I guess. But then who's going to sell the product? Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of in this, how do you find someone who's complementary to your vision, who has the same direction they want to go, shared mission, like you say, but they have a different ability to help you bring that to reality. And but that's- Certainly love has something to do with it too, right? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff on love. I agree. But I think there's a point where you're looking at it at a high level. I have some people that I know, one woman, she married, well, it's actually my sister. She married this guy who's a blue collar worker. He was an arborist. Well, my dad's a professor at a university. So as my dad got older and older in his career, he actually got more and more valuable to the university because he knew more. So that's what my sister, she thought that's how it would be with her husband. Oh, your husband gets more and more valuable. You worry about finances less because if they're in that type of career, it works. But then she married an arborist who was actually 10 years older than she was. It's a blue collar career and blue collar work. You can't do that indefinitely, right? Your body starts to break down. So most people, they'll do a blue collar work and then they'll transition to a blue collar entrepreneur strategy, mm -hmm. right? where then they know what to do, then they can have other people do it. Well, he wasn't able to train and didn't want to train. And so then you ended up with this weird place where she has, you know, kids that are 10 or 11 years old and his body's breaking down and she's going, what do I need to do? Do I need to go back to school, get my MBA, or do I need to give, get a nursing degree or get an education degree so that we can have insurance and some stability? Her assumptions were based on her family, a white collar career, and she didn't understand that when she married someone with a blue collar career, that she needed to change those expectations. It's not a bad or good, right? I'm not trying to be judgmental. It's more if you expect A and then you get B, that's a problem. It's simply have a strategy. So if she, when marrying him, okay, I love him and he's blue collar and this is the deal. You're mm -hmm. saying analyze these things, be strategic about it, maybe know from the onset that I'm going to have to do something differently, perhaps at some point and plan for it. So there's not this big surprise. Life didn't happen the way I thought it would. Or she could help him transition. You're like, oh, I'll take yeah. care of all the, the at home stuff. And I'll try to build the business if that'll yeah. help you. You can be the main person. I'll hire and deal with all the employees. So you'll often see good synergies between people, right? Yeah. But it's just, you need to think about those things in advance, because if you don't, then you're caught. You know, it's like if you never think you're going to get laid off, therefore you're oh, never saving money, then you get laid off from a company. Well, I didn't think this would happen to me. Well, it happens to people all the time. You didn't plan for it. Now you're in a bad spot. So yeah. if you're kind of being a little bit proactive in your planning, you can actually mitigate all these things. And instead of having the struggles, you're like, yeah, we expected this. And now we're moving into this phase of life. Wow. I mean, you're always saying things that's packed with so much. I'm like, I want to ask all these questions, but I can't. My show is only going to let me do about 45 minutes to an hour. So <laughs> I really do. I'm so interested in this topic. I want to stop you so many times and just ask you new questions. That's not even, you know, what I plan to ask you. <laughs> During a prior conversation, you mentioned these questions. 
the first one is, what makes someone a Shelly? I love that question. I think we think a lot in, in a lot of ways. We may explain it a little differently, but the general principles are there. And then what values and what structures? I think you've touched on it a little bit, but I want you to touch on it, I guess, a little more personally now, because we're starting with the what makes someone a Shelly question. One of the reasons I was attracted to my wife was because she was very driven as a person. I mean, when I met her, we were actually both learning Russian. We were going on uh, religious missions to different areas in Russia. So she was super driven and she came from the theater place where she could memorize anything, even if she didn't understand what it meant. And I came from the engineering side where I could just hammer it down, learn memorization, had all these techniques to do that. And she and I just fed off each other because it would be like, where are you at? So it was this friendly competition. And we actually ended up being massively successful because we were both pushing each other. And it wasn't pushing like, well, you suck. It was Oh, wow. This person is inspiring me. So we went a couple of years later and then we came back and we did some dating. We got married. So one of the big things was that I think, and I came up to it later was we're self-driven people. That's what a Shelly is. We are self-driven. We're not waiting for someone else to tell us what to do. We are Mm self-driven. We're going to go find opportunities. I mean, there was no one telling me I need to go write a book. There was no one telling me this. It was, I'm doing the things I'm in control of my life. So there's the self-driven piece. The next value we have is called proactive learning. Mm -hmm. I'm always learning, always reading books. I have books all over my house. My wife early in our marriage was like, why do you have so many books? Mm -hmm. You know, she gets pregnant. She's reading all the books on pregnancy. She's trying to do this with parenting. She'll read all the books there. So we're both in this proactive learning stage or, or value. Then we get into contribute. That's a high value of ours where I want to contribute to society. I do not want to, in any of my relationships, be seen as a taker, right? I don't want to feel like anyone was like, well, you took more than you gave. We contribute to our family, to each other, to society at large, to the point in business where I have people who owe me, a guy who owes me over $30,000. And I'm like, that's fine. I'd rather have him owe me money than me owe him, Mm -hmm. right? That's part of my values. And then we have the value of life balance, where it's like, go through life phases in life. When you have young children, I have four, you have this whole time where you got to be with the children. You got to spend time with them. It's phenomenal. It's fun. So exciting. There's so much life, but then they get into school and they kind of get older. Now my youngest is 16 Mm -hmm. and my oldest is married. And it's like, wow, this is a different phase of life. And life is not about trying to be balanced at every moment. Like, oh, I got to be balanced. It's more of over the course, you're out of balance. When I was in school, I was out of balance. I wasn't making money. Then I bounced around, you know, then I was in just working. So it's about overall balance in your life and looking at your own balance. So those are really the key things of being a Shelly. We are actors in our life, in our family. We are people who we're not saying, well, I'm a victim. Something happened. Yep. It always happens. Right. My daughter just broke her leg skiing, right? I've broken collarbones. I'm like, am I going to stop doing it? No. I learned from that. So there's this whole thing of how are we learning? We learn through failure. And I'm a technologist is what I kind of call it, where I'm a white collar technology person who likes to work with things. You have to learn. You have to constantly learn and you'll fail and it'll break. That's just the nature of things. So that's really the core of of what it is to be a Shelly. I like that. I oftentimes say to my daughter, oh, you'll get it done. You're a Mashana. It's like a brand. It's like 
this is how we do things. And it's like you said, you bump your head up against the wall, you fail, you get up, brush yourself off and keep going. That's what a Mashana does. I think that's one of the reasons I liked your question. What makes someone a Shelly? What makes someone a Mashana? What makes someone a Johnson or a Smith or a whomever? Well, yeah, it makes you think of, there's a branding side, but I think there's also an identity side. Like a lot of families don't really have an identity. And then I think it leaves your children to go search around for it, uh-huh. right? Instead of you as the parent saying, here are our values and here's what society's doing, whatever it wants to do. But no, here's what we are and here's what we value and here's what we reward. And so I think it's around a lot of it. And you see with all the mental health problems and identity issues that kids are having, I think it's a lack of of leadership a little bit on the parent side, not from a, I'm not doing it because I don't want to. It's I wasn't aware of that was I, that I needed to do it. That's an essential part of the culture. I love how you're doing that with your daughter where you're like, this is what we do. We're Mashana's. Here's how we approach it. We'll get over it. Because so many people will get caught up in the, oh, I failed. That's That means I'm a bad person. And there's certain cultures, countries actually, where that's fairly true. You know, you go and fail once and then you're kind of screwed. But in the US, that is not our culture. In fact, the opposite. And so I love that you're doing it with your daughter. Because no one told me to say to my daughter, you're a Mashana, so you're going to get this done. Some of us find it and some of us It doesn't come to us like that. And that's why our conversation today is so important because it can help people to be intentional around Mm -hmm. these things because it's important to be intentional. There's a big side too, where I see with the intentionality, I think there's a lot of people who go to work and they're miserable, not because work, the work itself is miserable. It's because they haven't contextualized why they're working. They have no purpose behind it. Mm -hmm. So they're like, well, I got this job and I don't really like it. I've had jobs where I clean toilets, where I've cleaned dishes for people, like done the crappiest jobs, but it was aligned with my purpose and what I wanted for my life. And therefore I enjoyed it. And yeah. it actually helped me get promoted because I wasn't in this, oh, I hate this. This is stupid. I felt that it had a, a place in my life, right? I felt like it was a ladder I'm trying to climb up That's and therefore doing it. the crappy work is part of it. Yeah. That's what I was about to say. It's a stepping stone. So stepping on this stone, I can't get to that higher stone that I want to get to or I think I want to get to if I don't first step on this one. So I can't be afraid to do the job that I think is so beneath me, perhaps. You do what you got to do. That's another Mashana thing. (laughs) Yeah, whatever it takes, we do it. Yeah, you buckle down and you get it done. And I mean, you can be in truly pain. I I know something of physical pain. And you mentioned some injuries that you and your family members have have had. You buckle down, you get through it, and you can't let it stop you. I think old people are maybe in like Westerns or something, they call it grit. I come from this, you know, I did a lot of weightlifting. You have to go through pain if you want that And it's, there's no different, like you don't have children come into this world without pain. The mothers go through a lot of stuff. So it's like all of us have this place, pain and discomfort is a sign of growth. If you don't feel like you're being stretched, if you don't have pain, you're not growing probably, you're atrophying most likely. Absolutely. It makes me think of the struggle even in learning. You have to feel uncomfortable even while learning. If there's mm-hmm. no discomfort, if there's not a certain level of rigor, you're not learning. You already know it. That's why you're in the comfort zone. 
You should have something that's challenging. You should fall on your face while you're learning and it's all okay. But I do think that while there's a lot of wonderful things in our society, we don't teach people that failing is part of it, that the pain is part of it. So a lot of people go spinning and what is, what's going on? Life, I'm a failure because they failed because they literally fell down and bumped their head instead of seeing that as this is one more step on the process. I'm going to get there. One interesting example that I heard from a venture capital company, there was this guy, he had invested $3 million in this CEO. They tried to do the company and he failed and he, he was internalizing it. I'm crappy. No one will ever invest in me again. And this venture capitalist came up to him and he said, if you have another idea, you come to me first because I just paid $3 million for your education, right? So there's this whole thing that's turned on your head. Like there's no way to become an amazing, like, oh, I just, I did it. And I was an amazing entrepreneur and had no problems. And it was all so easy. Now, the reason it's, everyone is, is, it's hard and failing is because it's hard. And I think there's a little bit with a parent child. You know, when I was a child, I was like, oh, I failed. There was so much internalization every time I failed. When I became a parent, I was just like, yep, you failed. Let's go. Get back up. Try again. Like it's a totally different perspective, but often we don't give that same grace to ourselves. Viewing that outside of ourselves, we just give it to our children. I have to tell myself sometimes it's okay. I have to (laughs) have to be that voice to myself sometimes. And remember, if you can say that to your daughter or say it to other people, have that same empathy, if you will, for yourself and just keep going. Starting a business, you're going to run into challenges. Most anything you do in life, you're going to run into challenges. So be ready for it and shock, stop being shocked by it. Anything meaningful, you start a business, it's going to be challenging especially if you do it with a founder, right? You're going to have differences of opinion. Where should we go? How should we spend our money? It's the same thing in any relationships you have, right? There's always challenges. I mean, I had some really hard experiences at different points when I couldn't find a job when we were building the Irish dance business. And my wife's like, it'll be fine, right? And then we went through a place where I actually made a bad investment in real estate. I mean, it was an interesting investment, but it was in 2007, right before the crash. And I had this whole thing like, oh, I just failed and screwed this up. And I'm not a good husband to my wife because I'm I'm just hurting our financial resources. And my wife was like, no, we got this. My parents also came and talked with me because I was in a bad space when you go into, you know, lose a quarter of a million dollars. That's bad. So, but it's that whole side of, getting those people. And then they're like, yeah, it's, we're going to be fine. And then my wife and I worked through it, paid off all of our debt. And we were like, we did that together. And that's actually what makes our relationship deep. It is not the the times when everything was great. It's the times when life was hard. And I knew, and we developed that trust because she stayed with me and I stayed with her through all of the tribulations. So if you want deep relationships, you can't say, we're going to have a great deep relationship with your children, with your spouse without it having going through a lot of hard times. Right. And that's great too, because while you and your wife were working through that, your kids got to see it. Mm-hmm. And that was even telling them what makes someone a Shelly. It's so many um, different ways. You and I could talk about any of these questions. I already know for like an hour each, but <laughs> I do want to just throw out there real quick. When you were given the example um, of the man who they invested $3 million. It made me think when I was a little girl, 
my mother had me ride my bike around the corner to the store. She gave me a hundred dollars to go to Stater Brothers and I lost it. And I went back and I told her I lost the hundred dollars. And I never forgot that she gave me another hundred dollars and sent me back around there to the store. <laughs> and that's what that example reminded me of. And I was successful the second time. <laughs> that's where you see it from parents where you're like, what are you teaching your kids and how you react to things? Everyone will say failure's okay, but then anytime a kid gets a bad grade or doesn't do something, then they get angry. So you can't sit and here's our values. But then if you don't follow them, we'll teach you other things. We'll actually live a, a separate set. So yeah. yeah, that's awesome. That was a big one. I thought about it for years. Why would she do that? It made me a lot more responsible with money though. Just uh -huh. even the fact, the shock of... You're giving me another $100 and sending me around there to the store? That's the interesting place. It's really important, I think, for parents to build those mental, I call it mental scarring, but it's just those things or mental wayposts where you look back, like you never forget them. Never there's some years them. I can't even remember what happened. And then there's some events that I'm like, this has been with me for my entire life. You remember every detail like it was yesterday. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Tell us about your book the family flywheel. Um, I know we've already talked on probably some of the principles and so forth, but what do you want us to know that might inspire us to go out and buy it, read it? The biggest thing that I'm trying to do, I read a book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, when I was 20, loved the book, played his game, Cashflow, my favorite game. I still love playing it because it was such an aha learning moment for me. But I then was living my life that way. That's why I bought a studio with my wife because we wanted the asset. This experience in 2007 where I had this bad investment decision, that made me realize I was doing the right monetary thing. I was investing for financial resources, but I wasn't taking into account my own mental health mm -hmm. and my own position where I wanted to be in terms of my flexibility to do certain things. My book is essentially trying to expand that out to say, when you're making decisions on what activities to take, if you just look at the financial decision or the financial consequences, you're going to ignore the social consequences, your relationships, which we've talked about. And you'll also ignore the human resource consequences, such as your mental health or your physical health, right? I mean, I ended up paying off over $350,000 in debt over the next seven to 10 years because my wife and I were focused on that. And every financial advisor will tell you that's stupid. It was low interest. You shouldn't have done that. But that's only because they're focused on just the financial side. But I was like, I want to take risks in my career where I'm going to smaller companies and giving opportunities for equity. And therefore, I need to have a lower amount of risk that I'm taking in some of these other places. So I was looking at my mental health as a key component. Mm. And if you look in at a company, they have HR departments that are constantly trying to help the company, you know, the employees be happy and take care of their insurance and create events. It's the same thing. Like companies invest holistically. They don't spend all their money just like immediately trying to get money back. They're going to go hire more people that are then going to cost them money. And then there's well, people will hopefully help them, you know, invest. Maybe they hire a marketer who's then going to build their brand. Then they'll be able to use that brand to make money. But companies are looking at this holistically, but I see so many families that are only looking at it from a financial standpoint. You know, the husband's going to work or the mom's going to work or they're both only going to work. And you're like, you have lots of money, but you're not taking into account the social relationships and your health and your time. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it holistically, Rich Dad Porta talks about this 
he talked the the cycle of money, right? You buy assets, they give you income, and you get cash flow, you buy more assets. This is the flywheel in the financial world. But it's the same thing as you expand that out. If you spend your time and then you know build relationships with good people, then they're going to introduce you to more good people. And then you're going to have compounding interest in your relationships, right? And one example that I like to talk about is Mary Gates, where Bill Gates's mother, where the dad was a lawyer and she was a teacher. She had her children. And then she decided to drop out of the workforce and focus on her children. And then as they got older, she decided to do investing in her community through service. So she was on the board of United Way. Well, Bill Gates, when he started to work with IBM, the CEO of IBM was also on the board of United Way with his mom. So he was like, oh, I know that guy. It's her son. And you look at that connection that she made through her service, through her social connections. We ignore that. But that could have been worth 50 or 100 or his whole, you know, the whole company, Microsoft. You undervalue your social connections. If she had spent all of her time just now, my kids are gone. I'm working again. I'm making my 30 or $50,000 as a teacher. Her family would holistically be poorer. Like financially, even though she was trying to get more money, they would also be, they would be more poor. So that's where I want you people to expand out and look at, in my family, are we focused on building connections? Are we involved in groups, whether it's a church group or it's a sports group? What groups are you involved with to build those social connections? Because those help our communities. They also help us with our own mental health. If I hadn't had my parents and my wife through that time when I made some bad decisions, I don't know what what could have happened. Those social connections are essential. And if we neglect them, we end up in bad spots. And you'll see this with, you know, rich people, the market turns down, and then you see people who are killing themselves off of buildings. And you're going, what are you doing? Right. Well, you that's all you had. You neglected everything else. It makes me think of, I don't know, a popular kind of term that's going around now is who's your tribe? Who's a part of your tribe? You're there for each other. It's like an extension of your family. So when you have people like that in your lives and you've invested in those relationships, and I like us talking about relationships as an investment, because that's the way I look at them. It's like, you can't be all that to everybody. But the people who are in your circle, that is a real investment. That means I'm going to slow down if this person is in need. I'm going to slow down and whatever resources I have, I'm going to allow them to tap into that. And Mm -hmm. it's reciprocal. So it's kind of like a safety net. And even that alone helps your mental health because you feel you know that you're not alone. You know that your tribe is not going to let you fall, your village, so to speak, or or your network. Well, and one quick note on that, a lot of people will be like, oh, I have this good job opportunity in a different country huh? or in a different city. I'm moving and I'm going to I'm going to make twenty thousand dollars more. Yeah, but you're losing all those connections you've built up in the area you're at. If they're good connections, you may be giving up the equivalent of $100,000 a year in value for $10,000 or $20,000 of financial value. If you only look at it financially, great move. But if you look at it holistically, you may say, this is a bad decision for our family. Yeah. So, Wow. That's good. I like the way you're explaining to myself and to the audience, just the importance of relationships. And I like, I'm going to call it the lens 
of looking at it through business structures. We know that with families, it's a little different because, yeah, it is the love aspect. It is the, the tie that's a little different than being in at the office. <laughs> Although you can have very strong, healthy relationships in the office, it's, it's a little different. But applying that model in how do you be successful as a family? How do you be strategic as a family? And how do you leverage those relationships even in, in social situations and family situations, which are all things we do at work. So it's really good. So you told me a story about your mom being rich in relationships. And I've already mentioned that I love hearing you talk about your mom. I mean, I think you mentioned her a few times and it was probably just, I don't think it was strategic. It was just, yeah, I talked to my she's, mom. Yeah, she's. Had, <laughs> I mean, she had a lot of impact on me. Right. I mean, she helped. She actually has helped me with the book. She wrote her own books, right? So she's been doing that. Well, and I actually got connected to the guy who I was doing the research for the book through her, right? But the, the example I talk about that I think you're probably referring to is when I got married, there were like 400 people there. And it was such a bizarre experience because I'm like, I do not know you. I I'd shake these people's hands and I'm like, I've never met you in my life. This is my <laughs> wedding. It's about me and my wife. What are you doing here? And then they would say things like, well, your mother, she helped my son get his Eagle Scout or mm -hmm. she helped my son get through this difficult time or our family had a sickness and she had done so much service. She didn't do much in terms of financial building, but she had spent so much time doing service in the community with people, helping them through difficult times that then all those people would come and they'd be like, well, hey, you, I give, I'm giving you a present. But then they'd also say, hey, is there anything I can do for you? What, are, what career are you going through? How could we help you? Oh, could I help you get a job? Oh, we'll support you in Irish dance, whatever. Right. All of those social resources my mom had built up all came to bear and they became very obvious at the wedding. And I was going wow, I didn't ever think about this. And so many times, you know, I'd been like, well, my dad makes all the money. That was my thinking. <laughs> but then in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, but my mom has connected me to all the jobs when I was young, right? She'd be like, oh, these people need a hole dug. All right, I'm a 15-year-old kid. I'm going to go dig a hole. So her knowledge and was all because she was serving other people and people trusted her and they, she had a reputation. So they knew if I didn't do it well, because my mom also trained me how to do jobs. And she's like, you don't do it right, you do it again, right? <laughs> so they knew when they were hiring me for whatever, that I was going to do it right. And if I didn't, she would make <laughs> me do it right. And so I look at that influence in my life, and it's massive, right? That's why I, when I clean dishes and clean toilets, I was all that was my, my mom's teaching on how to do it. And I was like, yep. And then people were like, wow, you did this really well. And then they honestly promoted me. And I'm like, yeah. that was her value system of we work, we contribute, we do it right in our family. So massive impact. Yes. Wow. Okay. You know what? Again, when I listen to you, I'm thinking my first thought, and it's more of a funny, <laughs> I'm like, wow, to be a Shelly is to be a Mashana and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I do the same thing. Like, raising my daughter. And then I was raised that way. If you don't do it right, you do it again. That's kind of like one of the characteristics or values of being a Mashana. You do things in excellence. You do things in quality. You, you have a certain standard. How could you go out into the world and expect people to give you a certain degree of whatever, but you don't do it? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people do actually navigate that way. I don't know. That's kind of like 
the thing that helps me um, stay focused. <laughs> it's kind of like for me, it's doing to others as you have them doing to you. If you don't want someone to give you a poor job, don't give them a poor job. <laughs> Women generally tend to be more concerned with social relationships. And I look at it going, my mom and my dad, but my mom probably more so, she was onboarding me into society, right? How do I behave? towards other people? How do I treat other people? How do I talk to all those people? That was all the training that she did. And she invested a lot of time in, in us, taking us on activities. I went shopping with her a lot. She also taught me how to treat women. You know, I'm like opening doors for my mom. And my wife's like, this is cute. No one does this. And I'm like, this is, my mom taught me this. If you look at people when they're, their parents can, they're the onboarders, just like in a company, you hire someone new, you need to onboard them into the company. Our parents are the ones who are onboarding people into our communities. And if we, we neglect that responsibility, that role, because we're searching so hard for this money, then we end up with our children getting into bad groups or not being accepted in society broadly or not being productive, not being good in jobs. And it's really sad. You know, it's like, we're so focused on this money so that we can help our children that we neglect the thing that would actually help our children. So you previously spoke of the fact that you wish you had navigated yourself while in college differently. What would you tell your younger self about experiencing college differently? I was an engineer, so it's hard, right? I was doing calculus and physics and I like fluid dynamics and all these things. And I had a few good friends that I went through, but I think I didn't realize how much the professors wanted to help me. I did that a little bit more in my MBA where I started to go ask them questions. And then I was like, man, you really want to help me. I actually ended up building some software with one of the marketing professors. I would have said, you need to make sure you're connecting in these relationships because those relationships will often stay with you for a lifetime. There's some friends I still have from college, which was now 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I would look at it like, yes, you need to focus on being competent, but you also at the same time, can invest in these social connections. I call college, if you do it right, super investing, where you get an education and you can build relationships with professors and with other students. And I've seen it now where I'm like, oh, this guy's a VP of product over here. And this guy's the COO over here. And all these people that I knew from college are now in high positions. And I'm like, it's a good thing that I invested somewhat later on, but I wish I would have done that more. So there's a don't underinvest, especially when it's at zero cost, right? You don't have to go party all the time. It's just help people around you and serve them. When you mentioned that in a prior conversation, I really thought about that. And it just makes all the sense in the world. It makes so much sense. I don't understand why it's just not structured that way in college. That's yep. a beautiful time, an obvious time of strategic time to build those relationships. And I know that some have, but again, let's go back to the word intentionality. If you went into college understanding that one of my goals while I'm there is not just to get my education, to start my lifelong network, mm -hmm. <laughs> make those social connections, rich social connections where we can be that village, so to speak, or tried for each other uh, for life, because we already have this connection of similar career choices or goals or or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And similar values, because you, you have to have delayed gratification to get through there. You often have a lot of similar directions. So yeah, it's it's a great place to meet people who have 
a lot of similarities with you and you'll tend to get along with. I agree. And I love that you put that out there. And I like the idea of thinking of it that way. What do you know that can be a bridge to help someone get to their next level of best regarding this topic? Um, I think the biggest thing is just expanding what you're looking at. I think people, wherever they are in life, are making the best choices that they perceive they have available to them. Mm-hmm. They, they may be making a really stupid choice from your or my perspective, just like in college, and you know, I didn't see that, but they're making the best choice. So it's really expanding it out. And as you're thinking through this, instead of just thinking, what are financial consequences? You're saying, yes, but what are the social consequences? What are the human? Is this going to compromise my health? Is this going to compromise my, you know, my time? So if you're looking at it holistically, that's why that on the cover, it's got the spinning because this is a compounding interest thing. If you do it right, it feeds into itself and money begets more money, relationships beget more relationships. And so it's really looking at it holistically. And that's why I have the diagram in the book where I'm like, once I see it, I'm like, it was just, I want that same light that I got going on a rich dad, poor dad when I played the game. Oh, that's how it works. And rich dad, poor dad was the first time I thought, I don't want to be rich. I want to be financially free. which is a slight change, but I want the freedom to do in my life, the things that I think are important. I don't want to always be chasing money because I'm sorry, you got Elon Musk, who's $200 billion. Like there's always going to be someone better. So looking at it holistically and saying, I want to be financially free in my financial life. I want to have rich social relationships. Those that's my goal in my social resources. Mm -hmm. I want to have a brand, you know, for people to say, this is an Aaron Shelley kid. This is the Shelleys. This is how they are in my community. And then broader, if possible, like, you know, you can trust this guy to work his butt off because we know who his dad was, or we know who his grandfather was. What does wealth look like for human resources? I want to keep learning. That's important to me. I want to use my time more efficiently and I want to be healthy. So I want to be physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually healthy. And if I look at those goals all together, then I look at my actions through a different lens of, wait, I'm not going to move. It'll give me a $10,000 raise. However, it's going to cost me these things. And it's going to cost my family because I think we're going to be much richer as a society in our family as well. If we focus on that and the, and the metaphor I use is every family is like a pillar in our society. And it's like the Coliseum supported by all these pillars. And if we knock down too many, the whole thing's going to collapse. So we need to continue to reinforce our families and be massive contributors in our society and being uh, focused on giving to each other because it's, and that's the weird thing with capitalism. If we do that, we're all richer. You do something, you specialize, I do something. We all are better if we're all contributing. Right. That's good. It makes me think of people commonly say, when you think about what career you're going to go for, don't go after the career that pays the most money. Go for the thing where you have sincere interest and passion and you're good at it. You love it. It makes you happy. And somehow in the process of doing that, the money will come. We sometimes chase the money. I don't even mean money in terms of making you crazy rich, but helping you just survive in life. You have to have a strategy with anything. So even if you go after your passion, you got to be strategic of how you're going to go after your passion and still make enough money to take care of yourself. You're not just going for what makes you happy, you know, blindly. I think there's one other element. It's a Venn diagram, right? It's so you have what can make money, 
What are you interested in? And then there's a third one, which is what life lifestyle life life livelihood. You know, where what do you want to do in life? Mm-hmm. You know, if my daughter she she had an option. She loved anatomy. She loved all this stuff. She was dissecting animals at a young age. Very weird to me and disgusting, but she did it. Mm-hmm. And so when they came up, all of her teachers were saying, "You should be a doctor. You should be a doctor. You're so capable in there." But if you look at doctors, you're on this nine-year path, maybe in your late 30s, then you kind of start having children. And she's like, that's not the lifestyle that I want. That's not my life goals. And so by looking at that, she was like, well, if I go into nursing, I have a lot of the same opportunities. And then if you want, there's a further career, you could become a CRNA and NP. There's a lot of different options. So there's still career advancement. But then she had the options to get married and not have massive debt and stay on this path. So She's 22 now. She's a a registered nurse. She works at the local ICU and she's married. But I think if she had had, followed the doctor route, she may have accomplished what she was passionate about and she would have had money. She may have compromised on her actual life. And that probably is where she would have been sat. And that's where the holistic model comes into play. Yeah. Yep. And knowing where you go, that's a big part. Most people talk about like, where are you trying to go? It's hard to coach anyone or help anyone. If you're like, so what do you want to do in life? I don't know. Okay. If you don't know where you want to go, I can't tell you, you won't be bought into that. So a lot of it's for people. What direction, if you're going to be a doctor, are you trying to heal people? What are your goals and objectives there? So that's a very important part of your strategy. What's your mission in life? And it can change over time, but it's more like at least have a direction. Like if you're on Google and you put in a location, it'll guide you there. But if you have no location, Google doesn't know what to tell you. And you can change that as it goes. And Google will keep giving you, rerouting you to wherever you want to go. And if, But if you don't know where you're going to go, it can't help you get there. Right. That's a good analogy. So I asked all of my guests the same final question. Which one final gem can you leave with our audience today? This whole idea is if they forget everything we just said, of course they won't. But if they do. What's the one thing you definitely want them to hold on to? I would say do not neglect social resources. Mm -hmm. Make sure you're putting them at the same, if not a higher level than financial resources in your life. Because if you neglect those social resources, you will be rich and lonely and sick. (laughs) Well, there you have it. Okay. (laughs) Thanks so much. I want to give you the opportunity to share any information that you would like to share about how my audience might contact you, get your book, stay in touch with you, connected with you in any way that you'd like to share it. I have a website, thefamilyflywheel.com, talks about the book, has uh, the blog there, as well as some resources, some forms to try to help you fill out. You know, if you were trying to build this family business model, help you through your mission, help you through your values, building your culture. Just the process of thinking through them is, is not easy because you're like, well, I don't know what they are, but doing that. And then there's also some, some that help you look at your resources. Are you connected to people that could help you in life that you haven't considered? I know for me personally, I'd love to help as many people as possible with my resources, especially my friends that are close. So there's some forms there. There's also um, the diagram to help you look at it. And then if you want to contact me on LinkedIn, it's Aaron K. Shelley, or if I'm on Facebook at Aaron K. Shelley as well. And then if you want to email me, my email is just Aaron at thefamilyflywheel.com. I love it. And you know what? I like how um, something you just said made me think, wow, 
there's a lot of social resources already in place. It's not like you have to go out and find them. You're just not paying attention to them. And so you're underutilizing your human capital, your social capital, all Mm. those things. Some of it is just open your eyes and see what you have and start thinking of how you navigate it differently, how you experience those relationships differently. And if you look around and you don't see much, you can get out there and build some. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's that's what you see. I mean, it's there's the Bible thing where it talks about asking, ye shall receive. Mm-hmm. Every financially successful person I've met, the majority of with them, financially and just broadly successful, when you ask them for help, if you are actually passionate about it and you've researched it, you thought about it, they want to help you, mm-hmm. right? If you're like, hey, how do I get rich? Then people are like, dude, just freak. You're not even interested. But if they're like, how do I build a podcasting? How did you do it? Most people want to help you. When you're interested, but if all you're interested in is the resources, people are realizing you're not interested in the business model or that engine that creates them. So I think there's that piece, asking you shall receive, that's just super important. Steve Jobs did that with Hewlett Packard, and that's kind of his takeoff. So, Okay, that's good food for thought and a great way to end this episode. Again, I am so happy to have had this conversation with you. I know that it will add value to my audience. Thanks so much for wanting to be on my show. Yep. Thanks for the opportunity. It was a lot of fun for me as well. It was a fun conversation. Well, friends, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Envision Together going to our next level of best podcast. I hope today's topic inspired you to envision a brighter future getting to your next level of best and to urge others to reach theirs as well. If you are encouraged by today's episode, Subscribe and share it with your family and friends. Also, please write a review. It will help me to reach a wider audience with a message of hope and inspiration. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and share your thoughts about today's episode. Until next time, envision the future you want to see.